You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com. Good morning. Let me uh, open us up in prayer. Father God, we come before you. God, humbled that we have such a loving Father. God, that we have scriptures that speak to that. God, you know that we have so many different voices from so many different angles coming at us, Lord. God, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to one thing only, and that is to you and what you teach us in your scriptures, God. Lord, I pray that as we begin to unravel these doctrines, as we unravel what it means to be a Christian, God, that we would stay centered on the fact that none of this is possible without Jesus Christ. God, and I ask that you would use my words today, God. God, begin to open our eyes and our hearts to what you would have us to hear. Thank you so much for the simple opportunity to meet here. Lord, allow us to not take it for granted. We ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Oh, me. So, I started losing my voice yesterday. So, if I sound kind of weird, that's why. Um, The pastor asked me to um, preach this week on the doctrine of predestination, which is the simplest thing to preach on, let me tell you. Just kidding. Um, It's probably one of the hardest things to preach on, Um, not only to us, but has been a debate an issue of division in the church for probably 500 years. Um, It has been something that has plagued the church with um, different doctrines, different beliefs, different takes on the whole issue. And because of that, it scares people. And people seem to run away, seem to have this aversion to this idea That God has a predetermined goal and will and destination for each one of us. So, what I'd like to do is start off with a a quote by theologian B.B. Warfield. And this is what he says. He says it like this. And I think this is a good way to describe the, the, the many aversions that people have to predestination. He says this. Our difficulties with predestination arise from an unwillingness... To acknowledge ourselves to be holy at the disposal of another. We wish to be at our own disposal. We wish to belong to ourselves. And we resent belonging, especially belonging absolutely to anybody else. Even if that anybody else is God. Furthermore, I think a lot of people in the church today, in American Christianity specifically have no idea what theological concepts like predestination, election, sovereignty, foreknowledge, God's will, they just go right over their head. And somewhere along the way, we've gotten this idea that those are 
theological guy terms. And those are for the elite guys, for the pastors. And we don't need to know anything about those. We just come to church on Sunday and read our Bible as much as we can. And so you can see the wall that we're up against today. So what we're going to do is we're really going to break down predestination and foreknowledge and the will of God and what that means. Um, I realized this morning that I very easily could have come in fresh from seminary and just data dumped on you guys and just threw every verse that the Bible has about predestination at you and talked about all the, uh, the debates between Arminianism and Calvinism and talked about how free will and, and God's will and how it all works together. But I, I don't think that's what's best for us. I think what is best for us is to simply look at what the Bible says, what the Word of God says. And we're going to look at one specific passage, and I'll pull from some others which you have on your handout. But we're going to look at one specific passage, and we're going to, we're going to take a more holistic view of predestination. In saying that, though, I do uh, want to offer you guys some resources that uh, have been very helpful for me because... Uh, when the pastor asked me to do this, I quickly realized as I began to study that I have no idea and that a lot of this stuff is like a labyrinth. Once you get in it, you start turning around and you get yourself all caught up and you have no idea where you're at. Um, and you can get really confused really quick. So I want to provide you guys with some resources that have really helped me understand not only this, but doctrine and theology as well. And the first one is Desiring God by John Piper. It was, uh, came out probably in the 80s. And it's probably one of the best books on a holistic view, a whole view of taking pleasure in God and finding your purpose in God. So it's kind of thick and it'll take you some time to work through, but it is an amazing resource. And right now on the website, Desiring God, which I'll talk about more in a second, right now, um, John Piper is reading through this book on, video, on videos. And as you read through it, he goes through it and chapter by chapter kind of, kind of expounds upon what he said in the chapter. So grab a copy of this. You can probably get it on Amazon for pretty cheap. And uh, just go through it. Our videos are free online. So that's Desiring God. The second one is a book that uh, Lynn has talked about many times, I'm sure, already in this series. And that is Doctrine by Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashears. Um, this is a very, very concise and good book on all of what Christians should believe. That's the subtitle of the book, What Christians Should Believe. So that's what it is. Um, but what's really awesome is um, actually Gary is one of my professors at Western. And I've had the chance to have dinner with him and just meet with him. And he's a very solid guy and very biblically centered. So this is a great book to work through. And it is kind of thick as well. But what the hate, the Bible's thick as well. So we should read that too. Um, and the other is, the last one is Concise Theology by J.I. Packer. And this is a good book. It doesn't just talk about the doctrine stuff that you guys are talking about in this series. It also talks about other things like the sacraments, like communion and baptism. It talks about worship. It talks about tithing. So it's kind of more of a, a giant view of what it means to be a Christian. And it's not as thick, but it's a good book too. Um, and I definitely recommend that one. And two websites. First, I've already mentioned DesiringGod.com. It's John Piper's ministry. And uh, it has sermons um, not only his sermons, but other sermons dating all the way back to the 80s, which I think is awesome. Um, and I listened to one the other day from 1992, and it was amazing. So it ha it's full of sermons, MP3s, videos, um, notes. 
It's full of blogs. It's full of different articles that they've written at Desiring God. And it's just amazing. And the second one is one you may not have heard of is monergism.com. And what's great about this website is a, re- is a website that is full of articles that, is, um, that are from the church fathers. That are from people like Edwards and Calvin. That are from people like Spurgeon and guys like that. And Martin Luther and those guys. And what, what it, it seems to me has happened is that we think, man, we're so much... And it's almost an evolutionary idea that we think, man, we're so much further along in our faith than those guys. Those were old school days. People they were talking to was old school. But I think it's essential for us to get back to their teachings. And so I definitely recommend that one, monergism.com. You can go on the website and on the search engine, type in anything. You type in predestination. And I think I got probably 270 results. And there are articles, there are sermons, like in text sermons from these guys from like the 1500s and the 1600s. And it's awesome stuff. So I definitely recommend that. And hopefully you wrote those down. If you didn't, write them real quick because we're about to move. All right. So with all of that said, um, our goal today is to answer the question of what does God know? Or another way to put it may be, who does God know? Or how much does God know? And in applying that to our own lives, how is this any comfort to us? What I want us to do is to come at this with a holistic view. Because I think for a lot of people, this seems very scary. And it seems very unlike the loving God that we hear about. It sounds very unlike the God that Joe Osteen talks about in his videos. It sounds very unlike the God that you'll read about if you read Rob Bell's new book, Love Wins, where he talks about how everyone goes to heaven in the end, where he talks about how the gates of heaven and the gates of hell are open and you can leave and go back and forth. It's very unlike the God that you'll hear about if you go out into the world and talk to people about Jesus. Predestination goes totally against that. And that scares a lot of people. The fact that God has a predetermined goal in mind scares the daylights out of people. Because as that quote said, it means that that affects all of your actions. That affects your destiny, where you're heading. I want to use the word destiny today, and I don't mean it in a cartoony, like, stupid way. I mean it in a serious, pure way of a destiny, an end result. And it scares people to think that God has an end result and he wants you to be a part of it and it controls everything you do. So what I want us to do is to come at it from a holistic view and really look at how this is a comfort to us. So we're going to be going from one passage today and that's Romans 8 verses 28 through 30. If you'll go ahead and turn there and I'll give you a second to do that. Starting in Romans 28, or I'm sorry, in Romans 8, 28. I may have told you wrong, I'm sorry. Romans 8, 28, it says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that... He, speaking about Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The text, in a sense, is a picture of the doctrine, not so much of predestination, but of the doctrine of God's ultimate will. Okay? And what is beautiful about this is that on both sides, Paul sets up these two promises that stand as pillars that he paints this beautiful picture in between. And what I think is great is what he says in between the two promises are what make the promises true. So, Real quickly, I'm going to hit the promises, but we're going to come and dive more deeply into them at the end, okay? Promise number one is this. It's verse 28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And promise number two says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So those are the two promises that we're going to hit. And when we hit these at the end, we'll be able to transpose them against and intertwine them against the doctrine of predestination. So how Paul makes these two promises true is he gives these two statements in verses 29 and 30 of declaration. And they're really the two main points that you have on your um, handout today. But let's reread Romans eight twenty nine right quick. It says this, for those, and I've bold, bolded the words that we're really going to focus on. Okay, so it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he, meaning Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. This first verse right here answers the what and the why of predestination. And that's your first point on your handout. It answers the what and the why of predestination. The what is simply what does it mean? What do these words mean? So we're going to break down these passages, a couple of words. We're going to break down the words foreknowledge and predestination. And once we break them down, then we're going to look at why they exist, okay? So the first one is foreknowledge. When Paul says those whom he foreknew, he's speaking about a knowledge that God has. What Paul is essentially saying here is that God knew us ahead of time. But what does that mean? Dang it. Okay, so sneezed. All right, we're good. Um, Paul is essentially asking, or we're essentially asking, what does Paul mean when he says foreknowledge? And as you're reading your Bible, you should be asking these questions yourself. This is not just something pastors do, something that each one of us should do. When you're reading the Bible, be asking, what does he mean? Why, did he, why does he use this word? Why does he choose this wording? Why did he put this phrase? We're going to look at a verse in a second where he does this and he flips it around. But be asking those questions. Why did, because A, Paul is writing this specifically. But B, the Holy Spirit is writing through Paul. And these are the words of God. So it's not like just any jumbled up sentence that he just puts together for the heck of it and picks any words he wants. They're used for a reason. And what's really cool is that he uses foreknowledge for a reason. What he's essentially getting back to is a Hebraic, a Jewish understanding of the word of knowledge. Now, when we speak of knowledge in Scripture, it's not a, oh, I know about somebody. It means an intimate knowledge. And this gets really back all the way to Genesis, 
where it says that Adam knew Eve. It doesn't mean Adam knew Eve like he knew her favorite kind of chewing gum and her favorite color and what shoes she wanted for her birthday. When, he, when the Bible says that Adam knew Eve, it was an intimate knowledge. To some degree, it has sexual undertones. But it is an intimate knowledge, a knowledge where they know each other. And that is essentially what Paul is saying here, is that God knows you intimately. It's found also in Scripture and other places. In the Old Testament, we see it in Jeremiah 1.5. It says this through the prophet Jeremiah. God says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. He's talking about knowing deep relationship and experiential knowing. Again, in Hosea 13.5, talking to the ones who have been exiled through the prophet Hosea, he says this, It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. God's saying there, I knew when you were in those hard times. I knew what you were going through. And I provided for it because I knew you. And then Paul uses this phrasing again. And here's the turn of words that I was talking about. In Galatians 4, it says this. But now that you have, the, but now that you have come to know God, and then he kind of gives a pause and he's like, eh, wait a second. Or rather to be known by God. And essentially is what he's saying there. Paul is saying, you don't know God. You can't come to know God on your own. God knows you, and he's picked you. So when in verse 29, Romans eight twenty nine it says, for those whom he foreknew, it's saying those whom he knew ahead of time. I mean, the, the word for is made fairly clear there, that he knew ahead of time before. And I want to take this as deep as we can. The fact that Paul is encompassing all of time and space here. He's speaking back to eternity past and saying that God knew you then, not before you were in your mama's womb, but before he created the world. He knew you intimately. He knew who you were going to be. He knew everything about you. And that idea alone should be a comfort to us, if that's where we're going today, which it is. But he gives this idea of like, Foreknowledge that God has intimately known us prior to our own creation. So 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And this is the main thing we're looking at today. This idea of predestination. Paul says, those he knew from the beginning of time, he also predestined or set out a predetermined goal. Now, sometimes people get words like predestination and election mixed up, but they're words that overlap and words that kind of mean the same thing, but are slightly different. So I want to want to talk about that for just a second, the difference between predestination and election. And I'll do it through John Piper. He says this. He says, election refers to God's freedom in choosing whom he will predestine. So God has total freedom to choose whom he will predestine. Predestination refers to the goal or destiny for which he chooses them. And then he says again in another way. He says, election is God's choosing whom he will. And predestination is God's determination that they will be his children. So do you, do you begin to understand that concept? That God has foreknown us and he has elected us as followers of him. But when he elects us, he elects us to a predetermined goal. 
And this is where people start getting scared about it. That God has a predetermined goal for you to go to. And people start throwing up red flags. Oh man, that means I can't choose what I want to do. That means I can't do whatever I want. That means I don't have freedom of choice. And that's the pushback you're going to get every time. Every time you say God has an end goal, the people who don't like this idea, they're going to push back and say, that means I don't have freedom of choice. I can't do what I want. And this is what I'll say when it comes to freedom of choice. First, if you're a non-believer, it is true that you have freedom of choice. But every choice you make as a non-believer is only going to lead you closer to hell. and It's only going to lead you to more sin. But as a follower of God, we have a freedom that the words freedom of choice don't even begin to show. We have a freedom in Christ where our choice is always to glorify God. So those of you who have this aversion to freedom of choice... I would test your heart and ask, why do you want freedom of choice? Is it so that you can glorify God more or so that you can run and sin more? Okay, so that's what I'll say about freedom of choice. And I'm leaving it at that. I think this is important to understand because it shows us that it is by God's grace alone that we are saved. If, think about this. I want you to really let this sink in. If God knew us before we were ever born, foreknowledge and election, and chose us before we were ever born, and had a determined goal, which is predestination, before we were ever created, then it is not at all by our own merit that we receive salvation. Nothing you have done or I have done, ever did or ever will do, will earn us right standing before God. It has got to be Jesus. That is the only way that we are made right before God. And I'm going to talk about this more in just a little while. But this is really, this overarching theme really happens, begins in Genesis. And goes throughout the whole Bible and continues into today. So last week you guys looked at sin and the fall. And you looked at a verse from Genesis 3, 15. Where where after the fall, man is separated from God because of sin. And God makes this statement to the serpent, the father of sin. He makes this statement to him. He says this in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And what God is essentially saying there is that I'm going to send someone and they are going to conquer you. They are going to conquer sin and they're going to put it to death and they're going to stomp your head. And he's talking about this seed, this offspring. And so as we begin to read the narrative of scripture from there, we're looking for it. You're always looking for the seed. So you read about Cain and Abel and you're like, maybe Abel's the seed and it can't be Abel. Maybe Seth is the seed because the Bible says that Seth was a man of God. Nope, it can't be Seth. It's not Seth. We keep reading. Is it Abraham? It's not Abraham. Is it Isaac? It's not Isaac. You read even further. You get to the first king of Israel. Is it Saul? He's a king. He's talking about this king. The seed's going to come. It's not Saul. Maybe it's David. David seems look like a good guy. And then David sees a woman on a roof and has her husband killed so that he can marry her. So it's probably not David. So we're just still looking. We're still looking for this seed. And then we get to this time of exile when the Israelites are captured. And God starts sending these prophets, these men and women who are speaking, trying to call the people back. 
And then God goes silent for 400 years. And the people are thinking, and as we're reading the Bible, if you're reading it from the first time, from beginning to end, you get to that point between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you're thinking, where's the seed? Has God given up on us? Where's the seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent? Where's he at? And then we get to Matthew, and Jesus comes on the scene, and he changes everything. He is the redeemer, and he is the seed that we have been looking for. And from then on, history has changed. From then on, people can be made right with God. From then on, the predetermined goal that we're going to talk about in just a second can be finished because of Jesus. And the reason I hit so hard on that is because I want you to see that it is by the work of Christ that predestination can take place. It is not by anything that we have done or can do. So, I think this is essentially why Paul says in Galatians 6 that he only boasts in Christ. Paul realizes that he can't boast in anything else. All the good stuff he did, all the scripture that he memorized, all all the missionary journeys that Paul went on, he can't boast in any of that. He only has Christ. It's the only thing that makes him right before God. It's the only thing that's going to get him to the predetermined goal, the predestined goal is Christ. So when we say predestination, we simply mean, which I realize simply is a weird word to use there because it's not simple at all. But we simply mean this, that predestination is God's laying out of a goal for us, which he knew before we were ever created. That is the most succinct way that I can put it. I could have gave you a slide that was like three slides long with a definition on like eight font. But I I feel like that's probably not the best idea. This is a succinct definition. And it says, predestination is God's laying out of a goal. A predetermined destiny. And the the third part of of verse 29 answers this question. What, why? It answers, we've seen the what of foreknowledge and predestination. We've seen what they they are. Why do they exist? And it's it's in this. It says, to be conformed, they're predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that, or some translations translate that as, so that, because, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So this is the why. And what this is, essentially, is the gospel. The gospel is not... You need Jesus, come down and pray at the front. The gospel is not you become a Christian and you go to church every week and you read your Bible and you hang out with some people and go to a Bible study each week. It's not the good life. The gospel is this. And Paul says it another way in Romans 5, 8. He says this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, this is prior to conversion and after conversion, even when you're still sinning, Christ died for us. This is the whole purpose of predestination. They're predestined to what? To be conformed to Christ's likeness. That is the whole reason why it exists. Because without Christ, we will never be made right with God. We're not ever going to go back to the Garden of Eden. We're never going to walk with God like Adam and Eve did. But through Jesus, through the seed, 
we can be made like Christ and glorified in heaven forever. That's the whole purpose. And this is really what I want you to grasp. This is what I want you to regurgitate tomorrow morning when you go to work with your non-believing co-workers. Is that it is only by Jesus we are made right before God. It's not come to our church because it's cool. It's not, hey, have you read this Bible verse? Which, it's good to share scripture with people. But it is essential to share this. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's what it is. It's what it has to be. So follow this with me as I kind of summarize how far we've come this far. God chooses us not based on any merit of our own. He sent Christ to die for us, which was the only way we could be made right with God. And then God himself prepares good works, as Ephesians 2 says, prepares good works for us to do. He has this predetermined goal and he prepares us a way to do it. We see here the purpose of this whole doctrine. That God would be seen for all of his majesty. And would be worshipped and magnified by our lives. Not because it makes us okay with him. Get this. Not because it makes us okay with him. You don't read your Bible to be made okay with God. You don't pray to be made okay with God. But we do those things in response because the simple fact that Christ is Lord. And as sons and daughters of God, we get to relish in his glory for all eternity. This is why Paul tags on the phrase at the end of this verse. He didn't pick, well, not that verse. He didn't pick, he didn't stop in Romans 8.29 with, to be conformed to Christ's likeness. And there's not a period, there's a comma. And he gives the reason why they're being conformed, why we are being conformed to Christ's likeness. It is so that Christ would be made first. Christ would be seen as the firstborn. He'd be seen as the seed and as the redeemer in our lives. So this is the what and why of predestination. What it is and why it exists. Second point that we're going to look at is the how and the where of predestination. How does it take place? What does it look like in your life? And where's it going? Where's the end result? Okay. What I love in verse 30 is it's almost a stepladder of the Christian life in a way. It's not a uh, robust stepladder, but it's a stepladder nonetheless. So let's reread 30. Just to refresh your memory, it says, And those whom he predestined, we know what that means. Those whom he set for an end goal, he also called. Oh, stop. Forgot to do this last time too. As we're reading this, this verse, what I want you to think about here and think about this. And you should be thinking about this anytime you read the Bible. Look at the, the, the subject, the verb, and the direct object here. I know you got to do some grammar stuff and a lot of you hate that. But it's worth doing here in Scripture. Look at what God, the subject, is doing. Look at the verbs and look at what the direct object is doing in this sentence, okay? So look at what God is doing and look at what you are doing. We are those. The those that he's talking about, that's us. It says this, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what are we doing in that passage? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Anyone? Okay. Some of you got that. Some of you didn't. Okay. We, let me tell you, we're not doing anything. We're not doing, you're not doing anything. 
God is doing all the work in this scripture. Look at it. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. This is essentially predestination is. He's got an end result and he is going to get us there. So we're going to break these down. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them. But we're going to look at what each one of them mean. The how it happens. Okay. The first is the predestined he called. Now when it says called, it's not like a, hey, old friend, come over here. That kind of call. It's not one of those. This is the effectual call, as it's named. The effectual call. This is the call that Jesus gives to Peter on that boat when, Jesus, when Peter steps out of the boat. This is the call that Jesus gives to Matthew, the tax collector, who's sitting on the table, sitting at the table collecting taxes. And Jesus says, leave everything and come follow me. And Matthew kicks his stool over and runs after Jesus. It is that kind of call. It is not one of the calls where it's like, all of those who are willing come down front. This is the Holy Spirit call. This happens and has happened in many of our lives when the Holy Spirit begins to unravel the chains around our hardened heart and begins to break the stony heart and is calling us to himself. This is not a pastor's emotional response. This is not a good worship band singing a song that makes you cry. This is purely God's calling. And I would go so far as to say if you have not experienced that call, should really test your faith. Because the ones that he's predestined, he's going to call you. He's going to call you to himself and you won't be able to deny it. So the called, he justified. And this is simply just a legal term. Um, justice. And it simply means to be made right. Simply means to be made right. And in saying this, in, a sin, in essence, what Paul is saying He's saying that if, if God is the judge reigning over the court of our lives, he looks at the Christian, the follower of Christ, and says, you are made right with me. You can be in right relationship with me because of the punishment and pain and sin debt that you owed, Jesus took it. And that's essentially what he's saying here. We are justified. He justified us by pouring his sin and I'm sorry, by pouring his wrath for sin on Christ. So we are made right. So the ones he calls, he justifies them through Christ. And that is the only way you're made right before God. Let me say that again. That is the only way you're made right before God. I have this tendency that when I, when I get too busy to spend time in prayer, the next day I try to pray an hour longer because I think it's going to weigh things out. That's not how it works. Just because you forgot to read your Bible yesterday just because you missed last week at church, God's grace and forgiveness and love for you is no less. Because Jesus is the one who te- justifies you. And Jesus is the one who stands for you. The reason that we go to church, the reason we read our Bible, the reason we do all of these different things that we call Christian disciplines is because of what he did. It's to help get us to that predetermined goal. And lastly, the justified, he glorified. And this is beautiful. What Paul is saying here is he is saying that Christ, because of Christ, we will be glorified. We will be made like Christ in all eternity. 
This idea of glorification is something that God intended from the beginning of time in the garden. If you read back prior to the serpent, what are Adam and Eve doing in the garden? They're not playing Yahtzee. They're walking with God. And they're conversating with God. And they're, they're hanging out with him. Perfect harmony with God. But when sin enters the world, that glorified state of being in perfect communion with God is broken. And we see people begin to move further and further from God. You see God speaking to Abraham, Isaac, and he kind of moves further back. He's not walking with them. He's not with them anymore, but he's speaking to them. Moves further back. Then he speaks to Moses through a bush and on a mountain. And Moses can't even look at him. And then further still, we see through the prophets, God starts using people to speak to his people. And it's almost like we're moving further. The more sin happens, we're moving further and further from God. But through Christ, through being justified, he's saying, I'm going to glorify you again. You're going to be in right relationship with me. You're going to walk with me. You're going to talk with me. And that is, in some degree, happens in our lives. It's what we call sanctification. It's where we begin to strip away the sin the layers of our heart that are ugly. It's where Christ begins to show us our own faults. When we get angry at our wives, we get angry at our girlfriends. It's begin to show us the, the, the hardened parts of our heart and Christ begins to strip those away. But that will not be complete until we enter into eternity in heaven. So he says, the justified, the ones that I made right, I will glorify them one day. And what I think is really cool here is it's, it's in the past tense. It's just reaffirming this predestination. Paul, say, or Paul says, the ones he justified, past tense, he also glorified. He's already done it. He already has the predetermined goal in mind. He already knows where they're going. He's already said it. It's done. So that really, in essence, leads us to this last point. Paul doesn't say this in Scripture, but I really feel like we can draw it from what he's saying here. The glorified have the hope. The glorified have the hope. Look at Paul, how Paul puts it in Romans eight eighteen. He says it in another way. He says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is saying that the stuff I'm going through right now, being in prison, being shipwrecked, being stoned over and over again, getting the skin filleted off of my back, does it matter? Because one day, there's going to be a glory that is revealed to me that surpasses all of this stuff. And that makes all of those hard times nothing. Because I will be in glory with, in heaven. Glory of God forever. So this really essentially leads us to the last point. I almost feel like that I could just stop now because you get where the comfort comes from, Right? You get the comfort of predestination. That if God has an ultimate goal, we got nothing to worry about. We just got to get on board with it. But I'll do the last point for the heck of it. So point three is this. That his promise is our purpose. Not so much the promises of Paul here, but 
penmanship of Paul, the promises that the Holy Spirit gives Paul in his penmanship. And they're this. We'll read them again. It's verse 28 and 31. It says this. And we know that for those who love God, and I will, I'll say this, make a distinction here. The only way that you can love God, truly love God, is if he has called you. Spurgeon says it like this. He says, I am certain that God chose me because if he hadn't, I sure wouldn't have chosen him. Think about that in your own life for a second. Prior to being a Christian, and even sometimes as Christians, do we really act like we love God? We don't. And that's why I think predestination is so essential to understand. It means that God chose us. The ones who love God are the ones that he's chosen. And it says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. And then he tags on the predestination line at the end. For those who are called, the effectual calling, according to his purpose, according to his plan, according to his goal, the reason he calls them. They're called according to that. And what I want you to see, the comfort I want you to draw from this promise, is that Paul doesn't say, all the good things work together for good. And he also doesn't get down on himself and say, all the bad things, they're going to work together for good. He says, all things, everything that you go through. This is why we can walk through things like having someone close to us die. This is why we can walk through things like having a horrible disease. This is why we can walk through financial collapse. So it's why we can walk through someone abusing us rather spiritually, emotionally, or physically. This is why we can walk through our friends gossiping about us. This is why we can walk through our own sin, our own addictions. Because God is preparing us for a goal. And it's working out for our good. Maybe it doesn't seem like good right now. Because I fully believe that God does want us to suffer. I don't care what you hear on TV. You look at Jesus hanging on a cross and tell me that God doesn't want us to suffer. So why it may not seem for your good right now, where you're going, that's good. When you get to heaven, that's good. So all things, the good and the bad. If I can make it this just... I'm going to say something that kind of goes against this in a second. But what I want you to think about right now is how, if, if, if this is true, all things work together for good. How is that true in your day-to-day routine? How does getting up and going to work in the morning, working together for the good of God and for his glory? How is disciplining, disciplining your children working together for God's glory? Because I think so many times we go through these roller coasters of life, these mountains and valleys. And when we go through the valleys, we cling to these verses. We cling to them. And you should. When you're going through a hard time, cling to this verse. But when you're on that plateau and you're neither going up or down and life's just grand, things are going fine. How is that working together for God's good? And that is where we really need to be seeking God's purpose in his plan. That's where we really need to have our eyes on the goal. So think of it, just think about that in your day-to-day routine. Because all happenings, 
all happenings contribute to the ultimate goal. The second thing is this. This gives us the ability to go. Promise 2, I'll read it again. It says, what then shall we say to these things? It's kind of a rhetorical question because Paul answers it for you with another question. He's good about stuff like that. He says, what then shall we say about these things? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And it's almost an understood no one. And I kind of picture it like this, that, that Paul was writing this and the Holy Spirit's moving in him and he's just writing, writing, writing. And he gets to this point and he's like, God is for us. Who can be against us? And he just stands up and screams, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he's like, this revelation that when God is for you, nothing can stop you. So you should have no doubt and no fear going into the unknown places that he calls you. Ephesians 2.10 says this. I don't know if I put this on the slides or not. Nope. All right, I'm going to read it then. It says... And I want you also to think again here, what, what, is, what is God doing and what are we doing, okay? Oh, we do have it. That's good planning, good planning. Okay, 210 says this, look at what God is doing and look at what we are doing. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And look, how, look who's doing those good works which God prepared beforehand. It didn't say you came up with it and raised some money and then you're doing it. It says that God prepared it beforehand that we should walk in them. If God, and this is one of the, the most freeing things I've learned. If God calls you to something, if God's calling you to a place, to a people, to your friends at work, he's already prepared it for you. He's already going to make a way for it. You just got to walk in it. So, what I want you to see is how this points back to predestination. If God has a predetermined goal, a predetermined end to all things, and all things we go through right now are contributing to that goal, then we can go. We can go to anything. Now, I said I was going to kind of contradict what I said about the day-to-day routine. I will say this. I feel like, and since I grew up here, I feel like I can say this. I feel like somewhere along the way, we, speaking to the church at large, but also specifically to, to you guys, we've lost the understanding of this verse. That if God is for us, who can be against us? Because if you really believe that, and this is true of my own life, if we really believe that, we would share Jesus with every person we saw. Because if God is for us, who cares about being rejected? Who cares about being embarrassed? I know where I'm going. And God has created good works for me to walk in. He has an end goal. And if you really believe, and it doesn't matter whether you believe it because it's true, but I hope you believe it, that God is really God, 
that he really is who he says he is. He really is all-knowing, all-sovereign, and in all-control. If you really believe that, then his will is going to happen. Then predestination is going to be fulfilled. We are going to be glorified. Like, it's going to happen. So what fear do we have? You think, I think about it like this. A lot of time in church, we talk about how, how at peace we are in Christ, which is true. There's a peace in Christ. It is astounding. But never, ever did Jesus call us to a peaceful life. If you look at the apostles, from our best records, all of them died of martyrdom. They were killed. If you look at missionaries throughout the centuries, they were chopped up. They had their heads cut off. They were tortured for the name of Christ. If you look at the church fathers, when they stood for truth, they were banned from their churches because the government didn't like what they had to say. Nowhere have we been called to a peaceful life the good life, the American dream. The Bible doesn't talk about that. The Bible talks about you and I going into dangerous situations. And I'm not saying everybody should, here should go to a country where it's illegal to share Christ and get shot. I'm not saying that. Some of you, it's probably God's will that you would. But God is not calling us to sit idly by while our friends die and spend eternity apart from him in hell. God has not called us to accumulate junk instead of giving our finances to the local church and to missions efforts around the world so that people in other countries who have never heard, do you realize that there's still some 2,000 unreached people groups in the world? They've never heard of Jesus at all. And I can get on my phone and find out the soccer score from some country in Africa in five minutes. There's people around the world who don't know who Jesus is. They never heard the name. But because we know that God is in control and we have a goal, we can go. We can go into the future knowing that we have nothing to lose. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live every breath I take is Jesus' breath. He has given it to me. So I'm giving it back. And if I die, I die. And I'm going to a better place. So I conclude with this. If we are believing this doctrine of predestination. Of God's ultimate end for us. Then we have all the comfort in the world to know. That God is in full control. And no matter where he calls us. It will end in our glorification. And this is the ultimate end of the whole thing. Ultimately it's going to bring more glory to God. God's going to get more glory the more people that I lead to Christ and they're going to be standing beside me in heaven. That's the reason I do it. The more I read my scriptures, the more I understand God and the more I can share it with people and the more he gets the glory. The more I pray, the closer I get and the more I hear God speaking what I should do and the more glory he gets. Remember that this, if this is what I want you to remember. Remember that this is the gospel of Christ. That God loved us enough to send Jesus 
And only by his sacrifice on the cross and bearing our sin debt are we fully accepted by God. Nothing you do, nothing I do, no good thing or bad thing makes us right with God. Only Jesus Christ. Those are for my believing friends today. For those of you who are not believers and you know who you are, know this. I prayed that today the words that I've spoken, the Holy Spirit will use. And begin to unravel your heart. Begin to unchain the sin that is around your heart. And for you to begin to see that God has a plan. God has a goal. There's a reason for all of this. There's a reason for the stuff that you go through. It's for God's glory. And God wants you to glorify him. A lot of people take predestination and election and foreknowledge. And they take it too far. And they say things like, God only loves some people. He creates some people to go to hell. But that is not true. The Bible teaches that God loves all of us. And he wants you to know him. He wants you to be called. And he will call you. He wants you to be justified. He wants you to be made right with him. And he wants you to glorify him forever. He wants you to spend eternity glorifying him. I close with a quote from James Dunn, who's a theologian. He says this, The Christian is not dependent on waiting for earthly fortunes and hopes that something will turn up. His confidence rests on the outworking of God's purpose through all the contradiction and frustration of the present to its intended end. Our hope and our rest are on Jesus alone and knowing that there's an intended end for us to get to. May we walk in that. Let me pray for us. The band is going to come up and play last song. Christ, come before you with open hands saying God through Jesus are we only made right with you God we desire to be on track with your goal with your predetermined destination for us God for those of us who falter God give us strength for those of us who think we got it all together Humble us and remind us we don't, Lord. God, may we daily keep our eyes on the cross and remember that only through it will the ultimate end be reached. Lord, I pray if there are any unbelievers here today, Lord, any people who have denied you in their heart, although they may go through the motions of church and of religiousity, Lord, God, I pray that their hearts would be open to you. May they see you for all that you are. And may they relish in that, God. We ask all these things through Christ, our Savior. Amen. The band is going to play one more song. And uh, Pastor Lynn and I will be up front if anyone needs prayer. Uh, The altar is also open for anyone who wants to pray.
Um, but you can also pray in your seats. And uh, yeah, whatever you feel the Lord moving you to do today. You are listening to Sermon Audio from Dayton Church. If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at dayfreechurch.com. And for more information, find us on the web at dayfreechurch.com.